All right, close enough to starting time. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning to all of you. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Before we get into the text on Christology, one of the things we want to do, and this has been our custom in this class for many, many years, is to democratically choose our next book. So what I have done is... uh, You know, in the good old days when we were all gathered around the table, we'd pick from a rather lengthy list and go through multiple series of narrowing it down until we we got the one. Uh, Due to us being so much online still, uh, I've taken the, the liberty to narrow it down already to four books. And as I was mentioning to the folks here before class began... These four books really represent a, a change of pace and a departure from uh, the, the super dense, tight, uh, dogmatic kind of reading that we did in Dr. Scare's Christology book. There are still many other opportunities to do work in, in dogmatics, Lutheran dogmatics. Um, Dr. Scare himself has another text, Law, Gospel, and the Means of Grace. We can look to do that in the future. We are also talking about Edward Kaler's A Summary of Christian Doctrine. That one can be done in the future. And we talked about Augustine's on, on Christian Doctrine. be a wonderful compendium, as well as getting some Chemnitz, the other Martin from the Lutheran Reformation. Reformation. You have Martin Luther and Martin Chemnitz, and it's often said if the first Luther, or the first Martin, excuse me, the first Martin wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't have been uh, remembered if not for the second Martin. And so, uh, Martin Chemnitz. Anyway, all of these represent opportunities for the future. What I've done to give us a, a little bit of a break is I've tried to lean us in some different directions here. So, our process is this. If you're watching and participating online, find, find my email address. You can find that on the church website. Uh, you can find it, I think, a few other places as well. But find my uh, email and let me know what your top two choices are. Those of us joining us present, you're free to email me as well, or you can just let me know verbally after class and I'll jot it down. But I'm just looking for the top two choices, and we'll see if a clear winner emerges. Usually that, that is the case, even if only by a narrow margin, a clear uh, winner emerges. So here are your options. Now, please don't pay attention to the edition because I will, once I have your choice, I will get on to Amazon and see what the, what the latest edition is or what's available to you, and we'll go with that. Pay only, uh, pay only attention to the title and author. So here is the Apostolic Fathers, uh, edited by Michael Holmes. The Apostolic Fathers represent a collection of different documents, and one of the things that we might even consider is skipping a few of these documents. We certainly could do that if it's it's too much, if it's too dense. But this represents Christian writings immediately after the New Testament scriptures are written, perhaps even overlapping a tiny bit. But you you get documents like the Didache, like First and Second Clement. Who else is in here? Oh, yes, the Epistles of Ignatius, of course. Uh, Polycarp, who it is said studied under, uh, directly under John, the evangelist. You have uh, the Epistle of Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermas, Epistle of uh, Diognetus, and the Fragments of Papias, all in here. So here's an option. If you want to go study some early church writings, and get a flavor for their confession, see how it overlaps with uh, modern Lutheranism, see how maybe it uh, corrects some of the issues in, in modern Lutheranism. We can take a look at that. Apostolic Fathers, Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S. Next would be Eucharist and Church Fellowship in the First Four Centuries. This by uh, Werner Ehlert, which we've been a little critical of Ehlert in here, but this isn't so much 
Ehlert's dogmatics as it is Ehlert as historian, taking us through the first four centuries. What is it that the early church believed, wrote about, confessed in regard to the Lord's Supper? And then how did that affect, uh, affect the, the practice of communing fellow Christians as they might travel? Um, and what were the various communions, or as we know them, denominations in the first four centuries? This One of the most helpful things about this text is it dispels the notion that denominations were somehow invented in the 16th century. Simply not the case. So this is a, a study of some early church history. This is a Eucharist and church fellowship in the first four centuries, ALERT, E-L-E-R-T. And again, a more updated edition might be out, so pay no attention to the cover, just the title and name. All right, two more for you to choose from. This, a very short book, and you can see I've, uh, I've got it a bit marked up here. This is Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, on marriage and family life. So this represents a pretty sharp turn from what we've done in here. Um, very practical, marriage and family life. Chrysostom pulls no punches. It's, uh, it's going to be brutal on our egos, and you're going to see quite, quite the attack on our modern understanding of, of marriage, uh, not only the right of holy matrimony, but marriage in general is, and family life. So an excellent text. And then maybe one of the merits of this text, too, is if you don't love it, it's, it's shorter than the others. It's shorter than the others. I would imagine that this text would take us the least amount of time to get through. So, hey, there's a strategic option. If you don't like any of these four and you just want to punch through onto the next generation of choices, here you go, Chrysostom. All right. I do believe this is the latest edition, but again, don't, uh, don't judge this book by its cover. I'll get back to you with the latest edition, should it be selected. Okay, last but not least, very contemporary, Brian Wolfmuller, a contemporary LCMS pastor, very well-known uh, period, but especially, I think, online and online circles. His book, Has American Christianity Failed? And I know that there's been a number of folks here in our congregation that have been interested in studying this book at some point. So here you are. I, I've gotten to know Brian just a little bit over the years and uh, obviously a wonderful pastor, a great guy, really gifted by God to articulate the faith. And he himself is an ex... Oh, yeah, look at that. I've got a personal note from him in here. Um, he, articulates, he articulates very well the problems with... Uh, with contemporary American Christianity, and he himself is coming out of evangelicalism. I can't remember exactly when he converted over to Lutheranism, but somewhere I want to say late high school, college, thereabouts, maybe it was as a young adult, but um, those are, uh, he, anyway, somewhere in that, in that vicinity, he, he became Lutheran and then obviously became a, a well-known LCMS pastor. So has American Christianity failed? Again, pretty sure that this is the most recent edition out, but I will let you know that should it be selected. So vote early, vote often. Well, just vote uh, once, but give me your top two books, and we'll see if there's a clear winner that emerges. So here's the only time constraint. I want your, I want your votes by uh, next Wednesday. By next Wednesday. You have time to go home and re-watch this if you want. Uh, Google or Amazon these books, whatever you want to do, dig into them a little bit. But do let me know by Wednesday. All, vo all voting will be ended by midnight on Wednesday so that when I wake up on Thursday, we'll, I'll, I'll know and I'll be able to direct us then to what our next text is. Sound good? Yes, Bob. I think uh, Wolfbauer is recovering from, from That's true. Yes, uh, Pastor Wolfmuller publicly let us, let us all know that he had contracted COVID and that it did a number on him. Um, so he didn't go into detail, but some neurological stuff, and it's forced him to take a step back from some of the public things he's doing. So, yeah, many of us have prayed for him and, and continue to pray for him, <clears throat> that God will restore him to uh, rich and full ministry. And I think, I think he's, uh, you know, he's continuing to preach and teach at his church in Houston now. So, yeah. All right, any other questions, any other thoughts? All right. Thank you for your patience. On to, uh, on to Christology. We've got two chapters left, and one is really short. The final chapter on the Ascension 
is quite short. And here we have a, uh, a chapter on the resurrection, page 89. As I lamented a little bit last week, the f depending upon your taste, the first few pages are a bit dry as we sort of trace the history that leads Scare to answer the questions that he answers or to take the direction that he takes. Without further ado, chapter 9, The Resurrection of Christ, a quotation from the Nicene Creed. The third day, he rose according to the scriptures. Scare writes, The cause of the controversy at the time of the Reformation in regard to Christ's resurrection was the nature of his resurrected body, which the Reformed held to be confined to a locally defined, quote-unquote, right hand of God. All right, so again, Scare begins us at the Reformation and talking about the physical resurrection of Christ's body and the question of where is Christ's raised body and the very limited Reformed answer that Christ's body is only at the right hand of God. Sort of this picture that this picture of God sitting upon a throne, you know, circumscribed. Here's God, here's not God, here's God's right hand, here's God's left hand. And at the right hand, equally circumscribed on a throne, is Jesus sitting there. And since he's there at the right hand of God, he can be there and nowhere else. Because human bodies are only in, in one place at a time. Okay. So we've critiqued that, of course, in multiple ways throughout this text in relation to Christology itself, but also in relation to the Lord's Supper. So this is scarce starting point for the resurrection. He continues... Such local confinement rendered impossible the sacramental presence of Christ's body and blood. Lutherans held that at the moment of the incarnation, all the attributes of the Son of God became operative in and through the human nature, but remained hidden in Christ's period of humiliation until he was glorified through God raising him from the dead. All right, does anyone remember? Here's, here's like uh, Reverend Park, no cheating on this one. You probably know it. Does anyone remember what genus, what genus this is referring to? Idiomaticum? No. Myostaticum or Apotelismaticum? Tough question, myostaticum. Myostaticum, yeah, the genus myostaticum. This is the idea that at the incarnation, where, where God and man become one person in Christ, that the powers of the divine nature interpenetrate the human nature so that the human nature can do things that a normal human nature couldn't do. To put all of this in really plain English, the body of, of Christ can do whatever Christ wants it to do because he's God. Yeah, there's the Lutheran position. I mean, once you get rid of all the complex theological speak, uh, it's that simple. Christ's body can indeed be in heaven at the right hand of God. Christ's body can indeed be everywhere. Christ's body can indeed be in the Lord's Supper. All of these things are true. We as Lutherans have no problem with this. Now, Scare has demonstrated that point in earlier chapters, but here brings it up as his foundation for his discussion of the resurrection. Now, Scare ends this first paragraph with a quotation from the formula of Concord. Hence, also the human nature has, after the resurrection, its exaltation above all creatures in heaven and on earth. Not only do we confess the resurrection of the body of Christ, um, but we confess that Christ can do whatever he wants with that resurrected body. An oversimplification, but the foundation nonetheless, I think, that's being laid. Next paragraph. Since the quest for the historical Jesus began in the 18th century, the issue of the nature of the resurrected body has been eclipsed by whether or not there was an actual resurrection. Remember, the quest for the historical Jesus begun in the 18th century 
is really the demythologization project. The idea that, well, we enlightened rationalists of the uh, 18th century and following, we know that miracles don't happen. We know that people don't rise from the dead. How then do we understand Jesus' resurrection from the dead? This must be a pious myth concocted by the church later on and edited into their holy scriptures, which of course makes zero sense. But this is uh, the milieu in which we find ourselves here in the West. We have to deal with this. So once more, since the quest for the historical Jesus began in the 18th century, the issue of the nature of the resurrected body has been eclipsed by whether or not there was an actual resurrection. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 13, confronts a denial of the general resurrection of the dead with the warning that it will lead inevitably to a denial of Christ's resurrection. Some in the Corinthian church were denying that Christians' bodies would be raised, and their argument is just as pseudoscientific as the arguments today. How can that be? If someone falls into the ocean and becomes fish food, if someone gets burned in a fire, when, when a body is buried into the earth and disintegrates into the earth, how can it be that there's a resurrection of the body? Again, what's the fundamental problem here, as with the fundamental problem in the first question? Can God do whatever God wants to do or not? <laughs> And if he can, then he can most certainly raise the body. Now, Paul's argument is interesting because he says, look, if there's, if, there's, if there's no resurrection of the body, then Christ hasn't been raised himself. And if Christ hasn't been raised himself, then all our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's all foolish. So the foundation for the general resurrection is the assumption of Christ's resurrection. So Paul held to this completely and literally. That's really the point heretofore. Scare continues, in 1778, Herman Samuel Rimeris, and I have no idea who that is, nor do I particularly care, sorry, you can Google it if you, if you do, his essay, The Goal of Jesus and His Disciples, was published posthumously by Godhold Ephraim Lessing. There's a name we encountered in the first couple chapters. arguing that the resurrection of Jesus was a pious fraud. The rationalists began a tradition in Jesus studies which offered other solutions in place of an actual resurrection from the dead. Long before this time, Muslims held that Judas Iscariot had taken Christ's place on the cross Today, many scholars flatly deny that the resurrection took place as an event in history, opining that it only has spiritual significance for indicating who Jesus is, which is, of course, an absolute nonsensical statement if there ever was one. I mean, what would that actually mean? It would actually mean that Jesus is a liar, or that at least that Christians are liars. <laughs> the Christians who put this into the scriptures are liars. That St. Paul was a liar. So, uh, this, this is obviously a ridiculous argument. If it is a fraud, uh, it, there's nothing pious about it. Continuing, Paul Tillich and Rudolf Boltman, in a similar way, understand the crucifixion to be a historical event, while the resurrection is a symbol conferring on the cross salvific significance. Oh, what does that do to your theology? Jesus was crucified on a cross, fact, but he never rose from the grave. All the pious imaginings of his resurrection are just trying to put spiritual or salvific import on the cross. Well, if that's true, then there is no spiritual or salvific import to the cross. Jesus was just a first century Jewish guy who ran afoul of uh, the Jewish authorities and then the Romans and got crucified publicly. That's it. That's not much of a faith. 
mean, really, how is that going to fill you with any hope or inspiration? Let alone grant unto you salvation and the resurrection of your own flesh. So this is, uh, the sad thing is, the sad thing is, these folks, Tillich, Boltman, etc., they think of themselves as Christians, and they think of themselves as saving Christianity from the Neanderthals like us, who, you know, believe, believe in the actual physical resurrection. And, and now where, where science and rationalism and, and, and scholarly work and academia have thoroughly debunked this, we, we need to save Christianity so we can still retain a Christianity. I mean, to which the rest of us, you know, theological Neanderthals like St. Paul and our Lord himself and all the apostles, we just say, hey, thanks, but no thanks, hero. <laughs> that's, like, that's the kind of salvation we don't need. <laughs> your, your brand of salvation, saving us from Orthodox Christianity with your fraudulent Christianity. Okay, I saw a hand. Yes, sir. Okay. Then how did they go back to the Old Testament with the miracles that Moses did, stuff like that? If that was their theology, that is the New Testament, how did they do the miracles in the Old Testament? Okay, good question. So the question for those of you online is if they viewed this with Jesus and his miracles, the miracles of the early church depicted in Acts, etc., what did they do with the very clear miracles of the Old Testament? Um, my assumption is that they did the very same thing. I don't see why they wouldn't. I just, and the only reason I say it's my assumption is because I don't, I, I can't recall a specific text from one of these men saying as much, but it would be thoroughly consistent with their theology to demythologize the Old Testament as well. They just don't really care about the Old Testament, right? Because they are trying to save Christianity for the enlightened modern man by denuding it of its mythological and miraculous and non-rational, non-scientific components, you see. Yeah, it's one more of these projects of let's make Christianity palatable to modern people by getting rid of all of the offensive parts. I mean, does that sound familiar? That's, that's everything that goes on in every age. That's, all there, that's really all there is going on. There's Christianity, and there's people saying, ooh, this is offensive. For the sake of the gospel, we better get rid of these parts. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, it's, it's just crazy because my favorite uh, Old Testament passage on this issue is in Ezekiel, I think, 37, on the Valley of the Dry Bones. The Valley of the Dry Bones, yeah. yeah. Right. And the problem is, is Jesus believed this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the problem is Jesus believes in a historical Adam. The problem is Jesus believes in the miracles of the prophets and the scriptures of the prophets. The problem is Jesus believes in the, the Valley of Dry Bones and uh, Ezekiel, what Ezekiel saw. Jesus refers to his own ministry as a, as a spiritual resurrection where people are brought from death and their trespasses to being made alive through through his preaching, but then also all of that portending to the physical resurrection, which he predicts of himself. You know, they will crucify the Son of Man, and in three days they will raise him again. And even the angel, remember, when, when, they come to the, when they come to the empty tomb, the angel's like, I mean, they're all confused, and the angel's like, what's your problem? How are you confused? Did he not tell you that, <laughs> that he was going to rise from the dead? I mean, were you not listening? <laughs> You have to love it. You have to love it. Yeah. So I guess, I guess you keep Jesus, the apostles. You keep Jesus, the prophets. You keep the Bible or you lose the Bible and keep, uh, what are their names again? I don't know. Soon enough, they'll be forgotten. Tillich and uh, Boltman here. Yes, sir. Yes. Algae, right, of course, yes, thank you for that, thank you. I was first introduced to that reading of the Bible in high school at a Bible as Lit class, which I highly do not recommend, because I'm sure the quality has not gone up in the past decades. Uh, but that's a very good point. Um, Dr. Park has, has reminded us that the way of treating many of these miracles in the scriptures, and, and the one that he cited was the turning of the Nile River uh, into blood, they supplant that with quote-unquote naturalistic explanations like algae 
uh, was actually what colored it red. Or you've heard this with the Red Sea crossing, that it just so happened that they were crossing at a time where um, there was, uh, it, it, was, it, it was just very low water level. And so they could wade across and squish across the, uh, the Red Sea. Which, of course, when you go read the text, the text is feet on dry ground, walls of water on either side. I mean, the text just doesn't allow it. Either the text is lying or... Anyway, the, uh, yeah, thank you. They come up with naturalistic explanations for all of this. So Lazarus wasn't really raised from the dead. Um, he had maybe just passed out and been wrapped up in his, uh, you know, mummy garb and was sitting in there for four days. And they do the same thing with Jesus. Um, that The swoon theory, yes, was a swoon theory, which is utterly preposterous, of course, because you're assuming that the Romans don't know how to execute people. And what, what about the spear that goes in through his side and, frankly, right up into his heart, thus the water and blood pouring out? He, no, he just swooned. He, rec- he recovered in a few days. <laughs> yeah. And somehow got into the locked upper room in his weakened state <laughs> and convinced them all that he was raised while nearly passing out from fatigue and blood loss. Yes, sir. Absolutely. If there was one thing the Romans were good at, I was making sure people were dead. Yeah. No. <laughs> it might be their historical claim to fame. Okay. Well, I'm being a little silly here, but uh, certainly, certainly no more silly than this demythologization project. Scare then, okay, so what, what's going on then in our milieu that we have to answer? This idea that's run rampant in quote-unquote scholarly, quote-unquote intellectual Christendom that the miracle is just, so, or the miracle of the resurrection is just sort of a metaphor and not really a literal resurrection, but just a metaphorical resurrection, a metaphorical new life. All right, Scare continues, very bottom line of page 89. Boltman saw the New Testament teaching on the resurrection as mythology borrowed from the thought world of the day with its myths of dying and rising gods. His popular theory of demythologizing presupposes that the New Testament doctrine of Jesus' resurrection came from Gentile or Hellenized, uh, that is made Greek, Um, church communities. This is a view challenged by Pinchas Lapide, a prominent Jewish scholar who does not find the resurrection of Jesus inherently foreign to the Jewish world of thought. Unlike many contemporary Christian scholars, he accepts the resurrection as historical fact and not an invention of the community of the disciples. Very interesting, very interesting. Okay, so every so often you get this argument made that, well, pagan religions have myths of a god dying and rising, and therefore Christianity is just a copy of these paganized religions. Well, a very different way of looking at that, and I think I first ran across this in uh, uh, Montgomery's work, where he, where he argues, but he probably took it from C.S. Lewis, but he argues that there's a very good reason why the pagan religions share and overlap with central foundational truths of the Christian faith because the Old Testament that speaks of the incarnation of Christ and speaks of the death and resurrection of God in Christ predate predate these other spurious false religions. The spurious and false religions gained their data from what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, you see. And of course that makes perfect sense in terms of spiritual warfare. The demons know what the truth is, and in concocting their false religions, they're going to borrow elements of the truth, and they might even be intelligent enough 
to try to make it look as though Christianity, the truth, is just one of many of these mythological lies. And so it might be an attempt on their part to distort things from our view. Okay, so that would be a, that would be a spiritual warfare way of looking at things, which, of course, we Christians should do, even if it's not convincing to those who are outside. All right. By the way, um, I think the most famous account of this is Horus. And this always comes about at Christmas because Horus always has these myths. So you have got to, you owe, yourself, you owe it to yourself to do this, but you have got to find uh, Hans Feeney's, Pastor Hans Feeney's Lutheran satire. Lutheran satire. Well worth your time. Very, very humorous content. Very, very spicy critique of the church. And he has got, he's got a couple Horace specials where Horace tries to ruin Christmas. And Horace descends to let all the Christians know that their belief in the virgin birth and God becoming man is, is just a myth that he created. Excellent, excellent critique and commentary in a humorous form. So check that out. All right. First full paragraph, page 90. With the introduction of the quest for the life of Jesus... The issue of the historicity of the resurrection has become a vital and preliminary part of any meaningful contemporary Christology, an issue which the apostolic and post-apostolic church did not have to face in just that form. The Gnostics, who may have been the opponents addressed in the Johannine writings, were forced by their rejection of the Incarnation into substituting a ghost-like appearance for a bodily resurrection. It is in the setting of initial challenges to the Christian belief in Christ's actual bodily resurrection that John writes about the Word who became flesh. This Word made flesh is resurrected invites Thomas to put his hands into his wounds and eats fish with his disciples. Contemporary denials of the resurrection do not exist precisely in the same form as that of ancient Gnosticism, since there is no question about the historical nature of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, in the early centuries, nobody questioned if Jesus really existed, if he died. And in fact, many didn't even question that if he was raised from the dead. They questioned the meaning, the import of that. Um, whereas in our day, they question, you know, if we can actually know anything about the historic Jesus at all. You can see the postmodern skepticism at work. All right, Scare continues. The problem arises whether this Jesus can be identified with the Christ whom the church proclaims as risen from the dead. Boltman alleges a charismatic but not a historical identification. All right, charismatic from the word kerygma just means proclaiming or preaching. That's the content of the faith being preached or proclaimed. Um, at the given time. So Boltman alleges a charismatic but not historical identification. Again, this is a move towards mythologization, towards metaphor, uh, not literal bodily resurrection. According to Boltman, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate and remained dead. But his followers proclaimed him to be resurrected and alive in order to express his special and now exalted relationship with God. What would be another word for that? What would be another word if, if someone, if, if the apostles knew that he was dead but proclaimed him to be alive? That would be lying. That would be deceiving of the first order. And usually liars and deceivers especially when it's something so obvious, aren't willing to go to their own personal torture and death for what they know to be deception and lie. That is to say, if this were true, if they had concocted this, it does not account for the fact that they were willing to go to their death for this central truth. Okay. All right, so the fact that they were fairly well negates Boltman's thesis in theory here. 
Scare continues. I think we're on the very last line of page 90. Scare continues. His resurrection belongs to church proclamation. Again, this is Boltman's view that Scare's articulating. Jesus' resurrection belongs to church proclamation, but not to history. Believing, I mean, just think about St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. That if, that if we have hope in this life only, we are most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection of the dead, we are most to be pitied. Our faith is a sham. That's how securely St. Paul grounds all Christian truth in the historicity, in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus bodily. All right. Believing in the resurrection in this charismatic sense is simply another way of saying that one believes in Jesus as God's Christ. In other words, you have, to, you have to eject all meaning from those words and import in another meaning. This view has been challenged by other scholars, including Wolfhart Pannenberg and some who were trained as Boltman's students. The defense of the resurrection of Jesus as historical has been taken up vigorously by the groups commonly known as capital E evangelicals, both in Europe and in North America. The earliest New Testament writings, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and Galatians, which were written 10 to 15 years after the life of Jesus, all speak of his resurrection. The risen one will return as judge. Paul places the resurrection along with Jesus' death as the basic foundation of Christianity. Quote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, end quote, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. All right, well, let's, let's pause there. What is Scare's argument and point? Scare's argument and point is that contrary to Tillich and Boltman and the demythologizers who are proposing a sort of development of Christianity and this charismatic proclamation only of Jesus' sort of metaphorical resurrection from the dead and specialness as God's son, that's simply not in the historical facts. The very earliest documents testify to the literal physical resurrection of Jesus. There is no charismatic development. There is just the stated fact. And so emphatically in 1 Corinthians, that again, not to belabor the point, the resurrection is literally the foundation of the Christian truth claim. It's the foundation. If Jesus hasn't been raised, all is lost. If Jesus has been raised, then we're right, and you need to become Christian. <laughs> the apostles, or excuse me, the apostle, referring back to Paul, in presenting the resurrection relies on the direct revelation he received from Christ himself, but also on what he received from the apostles as the common faith of the entire church. Right. In writing these words, Paul wasn't writing them in a vacuum. All around him are his contemporaries. All around him are the disciples. If, if he was mistaken in terms of his claims to a literal physical resurrection, he would have been swiftly corrected. He was not. Not only that, but Paul claims that this is divine revelation from Christ himself. So you can't have, you can't have uh, a charismatic resurrection and have Paul in good standing with the church. If everybody knows that this is metaphorical rather than literal, Paul finds himself in hot water. The fact that he doesn't proves that the early church holds that it's literal, not metaphorical. All right, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir almost literally. Almost literally. Some of you are in the choir. Scare continues. The resurrection of Christ is Paul's presupposition for refuting the claim of some that there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul makes it clear that his teaching of Christ's resurrection is not based only on the special revelation he received from Christ himself, 
but is verifiable through conversation with eyewitnesses, including the apostles and more than 500 people who are able to give witness to the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 6. This is yet one more ignored fact and yet one more great blind spot. Some of these some of these demythologizing theories sort of work for a minute, like the Jedi mind trick works for a minute in your mind when you consider, well, it was just the 11 disciples. Maybe they did concoct something. But Paul blows that whole thing out of the water. It wasn't just the 11. You can add him to it. That's 12. And he's got others you can add. James, the brother of Jesus, who, uh, again, if, if things line up, was a very hostile uh, type of witness, was doubtful of Jesus, thought Jesus had lost his mind and then comes to believe Jesus and believe in the resurrection and become a pillar of the church. But again, we're not relying on these individual personalities. Paul says over 500 witnesses, or 500 witnesses, you could track them down at at that time and say, did you actually see Jesus in his body risen from the dead? To which they would have said, yes. So this is Huge, And we cannot just simply see this as, well, it was just the 11 plus Paul and maybe James concocting this thing. No, it was quite public, quite well known. Yes, sir. The next issue is how would they all keep their stories straight? Yes, right, right. How would they all keep their stories straight? How would they be willing to go to the death for this? How did many of them face great, uh, great social consequence being kicked out of the temple, kicked out of the synagogue, ostracized uh, socially, threatened with death, forced to move, economic loss. I mean, all of the things that just, that common people whose names don't even make the pages of history had to suffer in order to, I mean, we don't have these 500 names. They, almost all of them suffered in order to retain this truth. You have hostile witnesses who have a vested interest in denying the resurrection confirming the resurrection, chief of whom we're actually staring at right now. St. Paul, of all people, had a vested interest in denying the bodily resurrection. Why? He had based his life, faith, and reputation on persecuting and stamping out the Church of Christ. It's just how he is. It's how he was. He was a champion and a hero. That's also why of the Pharisees and of the, of the Jesus-denying party. That's why um, they took it so personally, so bitterly, when he, uh, when he converted, when he saw the resurrected Lord. All right, so we have hostile witnesses in St. Paul himself uh, converting to Christianity on the basis of a physical resurrection. He saw Jesus with his eyes. All right, well, again, do you want Jesus and his apostles and 500 witnesses in 2,000 years? I mean, also, this is so fascinating. I, this, sorry, this is a tangent outside of scarce text. I've only, I've only done this uh, somewhat superficially, but it is fascinating. Some of the apologetic arguments in the early church, particularly Justin Martyrs, who I'm thinking of, their argument for the veracity of Christianity isn't so much the resurrection of Jesus as it's the willingness of Christians to go to death testifying that they will be raised from the dead. Why is that such a strong proof? Because that is absolutely putting your money where your mouth is. And that is a supernatural, supernatural ability, superhuman ability to say, go ahead and kill me. Go ahead and kill my wife and children. I, we will all be raised. That in and of itself is a proof, is a proof. And that is a generation's long proof. Every single generation, there are those proofs, there are those witnesses available to all of us. So, sorry for the tangent, but yet that's, uh, that's one of the ways, fascinatingly, the early church apologists argued. All right, we left off at the last paragraph uh, on 20, or 91, 91. It was long popular for scholars to defend Boltman's argument that this earliest of Christian authoritative traditions on the resurrection makes no mention of the empty tomb, which is a basic ingredient in the gospel accounts of the resurrection. Boltman alleged that the resurrection and later the empty tomb 
were deductions drawn from the early Christians' faith that Jesus would return as judge, though he never thought of himself in that role. Boy, how many red words do you have to cross out in order to believe, uh, who are we on here, Boltman, instead of, instead of our Lord and, and literally millions of Christians? Pannenberg has refuted this claim by pointing to Paul's inclusion of the burial of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15.4, quote-unquote, that he was buried, that's what St. Paul writes, as part of the early church's proclamation. So part of this, quote-unquote, kerygma is that Jesus was buried and rose again. Scare continues, the church never preached a glorification of Jesus without his resurrection. Uh, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Philippians 2.9, but made a proclamation acknowledging a continuity between the Jesus who had been buried and then raised on the third day, 1 Corinthians 15.4. This necessary relationship between death and resurrection was at the heart of the apostolic proclamation. The Jesus whom God raised from the dead was the same one who had been put to death by the Jews. Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 36, and then later in chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Paul's apostleship is established by the risen Christ, and this message is fundamental to the apostolic preaching. Romans 1, 1 through 6. The message is not simply that Jesus has been raised, but that he has been raised, quote, from the dead, end quote. Both the apostles and the Nicene creeds use this language. All of the creedal formulas incorporated into the New Testament juxtapose death and resurrection. Okay, just pause there mid-sentence. What's the point of that? That resurrection isn't understood as metaphor unless death is understood as metaphor. Insofar as death is understood concretely, which nobody disputes, resurrection is juxtaposed to that. Therefore, just, or, or, sorry, too Lutheran. Resurrection is juxtaposed to that, and therefore, resurrection must be literal, you see. Okay, that's the point. Sorry, I botched that, but that's the point. All of the creedal formulas incorporated into the New Testament juxtapose death and resurrection signifying that this belief was used to provide a foundation for it. Okay, references to 1 Peter 3 and second, or excuse me, in Colossians 2. The apostolic concept of death and resurrection as necessary correlatives, correlatives, how do you say that word? Correlating. Correlatives. I think I said it the right way. I'm getting fatigued. I need somebody to ask a question here. <laughs> uh, give me a second here to recharge with my coffee. <clears throat> my wife, I get home and she says, why don't you have anything to say? <laughs> I've been saying it all day. <laughs> uh, okay, pardon me. Picking back up with scare. Looks like five lines from the uh, bottom of that paragraph. The apostolic concept of death and resurrection as necessary correlatives in understanding Jesus as the center of Christian worship finds its origins in his own preaching about himself and in the Old Testament. See, that's the thing. If you're going to reject the resurrection based on this, this idea that it's this pious construction of the church, you still have a problem because you find it in the preaching of Jesus, and the, the argument there would be what? Well, it's the same church that tells us what the preaching of Jesus is. So that might not be that convincing of an argument, but what would be convincing is, well, what about the Old Testament? What about the Old Testament that predicts not only his death, but also his resurrection? How are you going to say that the early church put that into the Old Testament scriptures that have been around for centuries earlier. You can't, you see. So I think that's a much more, just intellectually, academically speaking, a much more convincing argument. All right. 
Last line of that paragraph, Paul says that his, that is Christ's, death and resurrection happened, quote, according to the scriptures, end quote. And the scriptures at the time of Paul writing that are only the Old Testament. So see, they're finding the prophecy of Jesus' death and resurrection in documents written at the earliest 400, 500 years earlier, prior to the Incarnation and the Christ event. So Paul himself understands this, not gaining the knowledge of the death and resurrection of, of Christ from contemporary circumstances only, but reading it back in centuries-old texts known as the Old Testament. That's where he's grounding his doctrine. The death and resurrection of Jesus happened according to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, thus far with scare. How are we doing? Everybody doing okay? All right. My stall tactic is evident here while I regain my linguistic abilities. Yes. Um, Bolton, he was Lutheran? Yes. Uh, Boltman was Lutheran. Well, kind of one of those we call Lutheran in name only. Yeah. <laughs> Mm, that's a great question. So Scare's talking about this. We know that this has run its course in academia. Are there any churches that teach this? It's a very good question. I think you do find this in America, but only in the most liberal sections and, uh, of Christianity here in America. And even then, it's really, I think it's really less of a formal teaching, less something you'd probably hear from a pulpit. Certainly, it, Certainly, you wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be demanded that Christians in that fellowship subscribe to that kind of teaching. It would more just be permitted and tolerated. So the source of the problem being more in terms of uh, doctrine and fellowship as opposed to you know, that, that particular doctrine being enforced upon people, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, do, does anyone here know of any popular-ish Christian teachers, pastors, on, online, on TV, whatever, um, preaching a metaphorical resurrection. Are you aware of any? ELCA, um, I was afraid of that. Okay. I can't recall who that would be. Dogmatics, for was it uh, was it Broughton? Did Broughton deny the resurrection? It wouldn't surprise me. Ooh, I don't know. This is like this is like a great game of trivia. No, I don't know who that would be. Not Marty. Uh, Martin, Martin, Marty. Martin Marty. Martin Marty? He denied the resurrection? Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's sad. That's sad. Okay. All right, so we tracked one down. Martin Marty, who, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think his time in the spotlight's more or less done, but for what, yeah, for what he had, uh, he was, uh, okay, I didn't know that, was openly proclaiming a metaphorical resurrection as opposed to a... I have a friend that is a ELCA pastor, and mm -hmm. Oh, really? Oh, that's telling. So I'll repeat it for those who are watching online. But uh, yeah, the comment is that uh, anecdotally, a, a, a peer in, in the ELCA, a pastor in the ELCA, in holding to the literal physical resurrection of Jesus, finds himself a minority that apparently the, the vast majority of... Um, of pastors there hold to a metaphorical resurrection, which of course that fits the ELC theology. Yeah, I doubt that it would go so far as to say you have to subscribe to that, but that would just be the assumption. It really kind of fits. I'm sorry to say this, and I actually it's kind of one of those sorry, not sorry. This is just how it, this is how it goes, and I think people don't really understand that this is all of a piece. So you're really convinced by by 
quote-unquote evolutionary science that the six-day creation can't beat. So you just toss it out. And then the next thing you do is you, you go, well, if I'm going to be consistent, I've got to toss out uh, that, that stupid bit about Jonah and the whale because nobody, I mean, nobody believes that. But, it, but if you progress along, you realize that that's the very proof Jesus uses for his own death and resurrection. So you go, well, yeah, that, that thing's obviously metaphorical too. So if you're consistent with this type of exegesis and this type of theology, it's just like whatever offends you, declare it to be mythological. Declare it to be poetic, and poof, it's gone, and, and you, you can be your own apostle. You can have a, a, a Christianity that really you ought to cross out Christ and insert your first name, because it's just the religion of you and your preferences. Yeah, very, very sad, and very sad that people don't understand that, like, this is all of a piece, like, be consistent. If you're going to reject one, reject the other. If you're going to reject that, go all the way. All, the, all your rationale for rejecting um, one doctrine should equally be applied to all doctrines then, and you won't have Christianity left. Something we don't hear about too much today, but, uh, and this is the question, how far did higher criticism go in this rejection? Uh, I can't remember, I didn't know too much about it at the time, but, and we don't see too much of it today, but higher criticism back in the 70s and 80s was... Yes, yes. Higher criticism, of course, flows from this same yeah. movement, and uh, really there, the, I know the higher criticism that, that we've talked about here in this congregation, because we had some direct experience with it back in the day, was like, I think at the time, J.E.P., yeah. though it later became known as J.E.D.P. And it was, just, it was the same sort of idea of, hey, let's, uh, with our modern wisdom, go back and look at this text and see if we can uh, deconstruct it. And lo and behold, we can. I mean, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy all the time, you know hey, I assume there's going to be multiple voices in this text. Let me find it. You could do the same thing with your emails. You know, I'm convinced that if I handed somebody a hundred of my emails, a higher critic, a hundred of my emails, they'd be like, this was at least written by 42 different people and maybe five to seven redactors. It's all me. It's just writing in different genres and different moods and modes. I mean, anyway, belaboring the point. But yeah, what they did, what they did for example, is they said, well, uh, in, in Genesis in particular, the books of Moses, you can find these quote-unquote different authors, these different hands. And that was one of their ways of trying to say, look, a community constructed this over time, and it doesn't reflect reality, it reflects the values of the community. Yeah. Perfectly blends into this whole postmodern idea, Lessing, we just came across his name, Lessing's Ditch, this idea that one can never truly know history. One can never truly know anything. You can only know what the community tells you. You know, yeah, it's just... I mean, if that's true, then everything we're living and doing right now is equally a lie and equally spurious. And later generations will critique all of the demythologizers along the same thing and say, oh, look at, their, look at the beliefs of their community. None of it's objectively true, of course, but look at the beliefs of their weird cult. Yeah, it's just... It's self-defeating, but they don't have the perspective to see that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You have the support. I, I'm sorry? From unbelievers. Oh, yes, right. Historians, Roman historians like Josephus who support some of these events. Yeah, that's a great point. We've, we've hardly done an apologetic, a formal apologetic for the resurrection here. We've only touched on some parts. I mean, I wouldn't expect this presentation in and of itself to be convincing to anyone. Um, but you bring out a, a great point of a standard apologetic toward the resurrection or flowing from the resurrection. Even hostile witnesses, even those outside of Christianity, are given to testify uh, either to the fact itself or to the early Christian church's proclamation of the fact itself, both of which refute Boltman and the demythologizing project. And historically, the Jews, ever since and to this day, support, yeah, there was an empty tomb. Ooh, yeah, well... The body was stolen, that's their... Yeah, well, Scare just gave us, I mean, I, I kind of jumped right over it, but Scare just gave us an example of a, of a Jewish uh, scholar who asserts an, uh, a physical resurrection empty tomb back on the top of page 90. So yeah, they are, there are some of those to be found. Well, we are, uh, we are out of time, and that's, that's fine with me because I'm a bit out of energy. I need another cup of coffee. But let's, let's just simply pick up next week, page 92, and we will wend our way uh, 
toward the end of this chapter. Not sure we'll make it. I am, I am thinking we have got at least two, maybe, maybe three would be more realistic weeks in this text. So the timing should be good. If you'll get me back your top two selections uh, from the text, and if you're joining us late, go listen to the recording, go back to the first few minutes, and you'll, you'll see the different options we have for our upcoming text, for our study. Give me your top two options. I'll let you know next week what was decided, and off we'll go. The Lord be with you.